This is The Great Composers from member-supported Colorado Public Radio and CPR Classical. The dramatic opening to Sergei Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto, it captivates the world, and this sound eventually takes Hollywood by storm. This sound becomes the go-to sound for many early filmmakers, like the producers of a British World War II film called Dangerous Moonlight. There it is, that classic Rachmaninoff dramatic opening. Only it's not Rachmaninoff. (laughs) Right. The producers of Dangerous Moonlight, they wanted Rachmaninoff to write a piece for their film. (laughs) But they couldn't afford him. So they went to a British composer named Richard Adensel and asked him, hey, could you write something that sounds like Rachmaninoff? Sergei Rachmaninoff's music influenced the early Hollywood sound, and his is the life and music that we are exploring on the Great Composer series from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio. I'm Carla Walker with Scott O'Neill in the CPR Performance Studio, and welcome to Chapter 5. Scott, Rachmaninoff's own life often reads like a Hollywood script. Yeah, a little bit, right? Talented young composer, crushed by the premiere of his first symphony. He quits writing completely. Then he's hypnotized to help him believe in himself again so he can write a great concerto. And it works. (laughs) The composer battles back from depression and self-doubt to write one of the all-time most beloved pieces in all of classical music. The audience loves it. The second piano concerto is a huge hit. And this helps to restore Rachmaninoff's wounded soul. Scott, I think it helps him to see that there is light out of darkness, that the music he hears in his heart is the music everyone wants to hear, and that he can overcome his paralyzing writer's block. Yeah, it's one of the greatest comeback stories of all time. Scott and I are calling this Rachmaninoff's golden decade of Russian Romanticism. And as we look back through this lens of history at this decade, you can frame it as his golden decade because several other of his most beloved pieces, like this one, will come from this time. We'll explore this massive hit from Rachmaninoff's Golden Decade in just a bit. Yeah, I I think it's fair to call this Rachmaninoff's Golden Decade if you put an asterisk next to Golden. Because while the concert pieces from this time truly are amazing, 
there just aren't that many of them because he also pursues some other avenues. Well, you think he'd go on tour with the piano concerto, all the great European capitals, maybe even America. But no, he doesn't. After a few performances of the piano concerto, he took a job conducting opera at the Bolshoi Theater, where he also composed two operas, including Francesca da Rimini. His operas aren't that well-known today, but the combination of composing and performing opera really was his main focus at this time, and it kept him from writing more concert pieces like the piano concerto. But I don't get it. I really don't. Why this detour? Why not take all that success, all that momentum from a second piano concerto, and write another one? Well, I have a theory. All right. You know, if you've hit the bullseye like Rachmaninoff did with the second piano concerto... Maybe you just want to leave it at that. You know, judge me for that. That's how I write a concerto. Because, you know, unless you've got something equal or better, maybe it's just best to stay silent. Because unless you hit that bullseye absolutely dead center again, the next piece is bound to be a letdown. So the theory is don't write another concerto because you've written a really great one. But also... Don't write a symphony because you've had the worst disaster of your life with your first symphony. <laughs> oh, there is that, right? Stay away. <laughs> He's repelled by both success and failure. But I have another theory. What's that? You know, as much as I love Rachmaninoff, I just don't think he was hungry enough. Hungry for fame? Hungry for... Hungry literally and figuratively. Hmm. You know, like hunger wasn't constantly at Rachmaninoff's doorstep like it was with Mozart. And I just don't sense that kind of hunger, that constantly insatiable drive to compose like Mahler or Beethoven. So really, Rachmaninoff was neither hungry nor hungry. Well, if you think about it, times had changed. Think about Mozart. Mozart earned his income from writing music on commission and then giving concerts with that music. I mean, there certainly were no music royalty payments in Mozart's days, and the sheet music industry was in its infancy. So Mozart wrote a lot because he had to write a lot. Yeah, thanks to the French Revolution and the rise of the middle class, audiences grew exponentially. And by that, I mean both audiences in the concert hall and audiences buying sheet music. I mean, music's no longer the exclusive plaything of the rich and aristocratic. You know, and this wider consumer base changed the face of music dramatically. And by Rachmaninoff's time, music royalty laws were coming into being. So Rachmaninoff could earn more money off of fewer compositions. And there were other new ways to make money as well. Like you could be a rock star virtuoso, think Franz Liszt, pianist, or violinist Niccolo Paganini. I mean, you could be wealthy just from being a soloist. Yeah, and conducting too. I mean, being a conductor didn't become a full-time career until the late 1800s. I mean, if you think about it, Mozart's time was the age of the Kapellmeister, the composer and court employee. Rachmaninoff's time was the age of the maestro, the conductor, the free agent. And Rachmaninoff, he was skilled at all three, composer, pianist, and conductor. Yeah, and let's face it, as a livelihood, composing is risky. Yeah. I mean, Rachmaninoff was nothing if not pragmatic. And if you can choose, it's much wiser, much safer to be a conductor and soloist. 
But he didn't stop writing completely. Yeah, in fact, Rachmaninoff, besides the operas that he wrote at this time, he wrote tons of songs throughout his lifetime, like this, called They Replied. That's a song by Rachmaninoff called They Replied. So, Scott, Rachmaninoff is living comfortably. He's teaching. He's conducting. He's composing when he feels moved to compose, but he's not depending on it for a living. Right. But this fact that he enjoyed such comfort points out another thing that I really respect about him. Because hmm. it's about this time, 1904, 1905, that there's a lot of political unrest in Russia. I mean, you know, the social unrest, the protesters are being shot at the doorstep of the Tsar at this time. Economic disparities, lack of freedoms, these are at the root of this unrest. Yeah, and the truth was Rachmaninoff was one of the privileged class, but he risks it all by signing a public letter railing against what he sees as growing tyranny against freedom. It read, When there is freedom neither of thought nor of conscience in the country, no freedom of speech or the press, the title free artist then sounds like a bitter joke. We are convinced that there is only one way out of these conditions. Russia must at last embark on the road to radical reforms. That is pretty risky. Yeah, and honestly, in hindsight being 2020, we can say, uh, be careful what you wish for, Sergei. Those radical reforms are not going to turn out the way you think. Instead, they will create a catastrophe that will haunt you for the rest of your life. All right. Don't give away that story just yet, Scott. But it's about this time that Rachmaninoff decides to get out of Dodge. Yeah, moves his entire family out of Russia. But now, because of that... There's no cushy teaching job at the girls' school, no conducting gig at the Bolshoi, no free housing at the family estate. So money becomes an issue. And does that nudge Rachmaninoff back to composing? Well, yes. He got straight to work on a secret project, a new symphony. Because the last symphony went so well for him, right? (laughs) (laughs) And that's exactly why I think he kept it secret. I mean, if he doesn't like how it's turning out, he can drop it. No one's the wiser. But news got leaked in a Russian newspaper, and he had to confess in a letter. I have composed a symphony. It's true. I finished it a month ago and immediately put it aside. It was a severe worry to me, and I'm not going to think about it anymore. But I am mystified how the newspapers got onto it. Well, we all remember what happened last time he wrote a symphony. It was a disaster. He stopped writing any music for three years. But now he's got that immense success of the second concerto to lean on, and this symphony restores his confidence. You know, 
One thing that strikes me about all these effusive, glorious, romantic melodies is that they grow out of pieces that all begin very dark in minor keys. I mean, if you look at the second piano concerto, the opening theme almost sounds like a march to the gulag. The second symphony, it's full of beautiful, luxurious themes, but just like the second concerto, it begins very dark and serious. Here, let me show you at the piano. It starts in the low strings alone. Then this painful chorale in the woodwinds. by a lonely fragment in the violins. That gets echoed and the whole thing repeats. Not much later, there's this painful fragment that starts in the viola way up here with the flute. After the violas play that beginning, then the second violins play, then the first violins play the same thing over and over again, echoing between the instruments, peeling away in this painful melody. dark and a bit gloomy. But, as with so many of Rachmaninoff's greatest pieces, what stays with us, what we really remember and love, are the romantic, lavish themes that we get later. Well, that is his formula, right? <laughs> dark and brooding openings that turn into lush and romantic melodies. But ironically, it's those pieces that fit this formula. They seem to be the hardest for him to write. I wonder if it's truly hard. Maybe it's just rarer. Because mm. if you think about it, I'm, I'm convinced that composition is as much a process of discovery as it is creation. Often the most powerful, if I can call them discoveries, are the simplest in content. But there are only so many of those tonal gems out there to be found. Well, how do you mean? Well, what is surely the most famous melody from this piece has this really simple construction. It's just a pattern. You start here. Now you take that pattern and you move down a step and you repeat it. Down another step and repeat it again. It's a simple, but oh, I love it. It's just a repeating pattern, literally like you might find in carpet or tiles. <laughs> but much prettier. So much prettier, but <laughs> right. the concept is the same. Not all patterns sound good, but this one is gorgeous. And you could almost say that Rachmaninoff discovered it as much as he created it.
from the third movement of Rachmaninoff's Symphony Number no. 2. And that particular theme, Scott, is so beautiful, so approachable. The contemporary recording artists have used it wholesale in their songs. Yeah, in the 1970s, singer-songwriter Eric Carmen had a hit song with this melody and actually ended up having to pay royalties to the Rachmaninoff estate for using this in his song, Never Gonna Fall in Love Again. There are those modern publishing right. laws I was talking about. Right. But this symphony has so many great melodies. I mean, you can just tell that Rachmaninoff was so inspired to write it. Yeah, and I think one of his most inspired melodies, he really does create and create and create <laughs> in the truest sense of the word. He starts with this simple idea. Again, here's it at the piano. Just when it seems like he might cadence, he keeps it aloft with this. Cadence. Explain that for us. Well, if music were a spoken sentence, a cadence would be like a period and maybe a pause. So the cadence, it's the end of the sentence. It makes it sound finished. Right. And if Rachmaninoff had done a full cadence there, it might have sounded something like... Yeah. Period. Mm -hmm. Full stop. But... That's not what he does. For Rachmaninoff, it's more like a comma. Because he's got more to say. Stop there. Nope. <laughs> Could stop, but no. <laughs> These melodies go on and on. They, they just keep floating. They never really seem to land. It's, it's almost like William Faulkner for music.
this symphony, Scott, premiered in St. Petersburg. Right. The very city where his first symphony bombed. Yeah. Nearly halted his career as but, a composer. Right, but this is a huge success. Yeah, payback. Take that. Right? <laughs> Even the wild success of his second piano concerto didn't seem to restore his self-esteem and confidence the way this symphony did. I mean, he had successes in so many other genres, like, you know, piano concertos, songs, and operas. But the symphony had remained unconquered territory for Rachmaninoff. But all that changed with this piece. And this second symphony was and is so well-loved that for all the criticism he received about not being Russian enough, the truth is, for most people, this symphony combined with his second piano concerto, they define Russian romanticism in music. Yeah, those rival composers, remember Kui and Friends? Yeah. They might not like it, but Rachmaninoff is starting to win the PR award to define what is Russian music. And I really think he found his voice with these pieces, and it is unabashedly romantic. He even put it in words when he said, What is music? How do you define it? Music is a calm, moonlit night, the rustle of leaves in summer. Music is the far-off peal of bells at dusk. Music comes straight from the heart and talks only to the heart. It is love. Music is the sister of poetry, and her mother is sorrow. His quote is as poetic and romantic as his music is, but these beautiful, uplifting themes, they won't last. Life is about to change. Yeah, Rachmaninoff's music takes a darker turn as turmoil in Russia worsens. Another revolution is brewing, and Rachmaninoff will have to make the most painful decision of his life. He still writes uplifting themes in his next pieces, but they become much, much rarer as the fragile world around him starts to show signs of collapse. 1909 will prove to be an unusually productive year for Rachmaninoff's composing career. Yeah, well, he had clear motivation. He needed to buy a new car. (laughs) We will explore Rachmaninoff's love for fast cars and dark melodies next time on The Great Composers from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio. I'm Carla Walker. I'm Scott O'Neill. Thanks for listening. Thank you to CPR's contributing members for making this podcast possible. Learn about membership at CPR.org.